Hey everybody, welcome to episode number eight of The Narrative. I'm your host, Jeff Gallett. I'm so happy that you found the podcast. If this is your first listen, I encourage you to subscribe and give us a review. You could even go back and listen to the first few episodes. I find storytelling interesting, and I find the storytellers themselves fascinating. So the idea behind this podcast is to meet people who are great storytellers and to get to know them. I'm really pleased that Megan Burns is joining me for this episode. Megan is a world-renowned thought leader in customer and employee experience. She's the principal of her own consultancy, Experience Enterprises. Prior to that, she spent more than 10 years as a vice president and distinguished analyst at Forrester Research, where she was a leader in the customer experience practice. While at Forrester, Megan was one of the creators behind the idea of experience-based differentiation. Today, Megan is a sought-out keynote speaker, experience management coach, and an advisor who has worked with more than half of the Fortune 50. You can learn more about her at megan-burns.com. Megan and I have done webinars, speaking engagements at events, and corporate videos together many times. But this is the first time we've been able to just have a public conversation about her backstory, her work, her thoughts about the pandemic and return to work, and a wide array of other subjects. I think you'll find Megan as fascinating as I do. So Megan, welcome to The Narrative. I'm really excited to have you here today. Thanks, Jeff. I'm excited to be here. It's uh, We've known each other a long time. We've done a lot of speaking things together, but we've never done a podcast, so this should be fun. Hey, there's got to be a first time for everything, there, hopefully not the last. There does. So I wanted to start off, um, the, as you know, the, the subject matter and the focus of the podcast is on storytelling, um, but I wanted to start off with one of my favorite things that you do, um, probably since you started your own company, is your Word Nerd Wednesdays. I just think yep. it's I think it's such a cool thing. Like every week, I look forward to going on to LinkedIn and seeing what the word is for this week and what the definition of it is. First of all, I, yay! I'm so glad that you like that. I I did that kind of on a lark. Um, I was reading a book actually called uh, "Known" by Mark Schaefer, and it's about how to become known for something. And one of the things he talked about was leaning into whatever it is that you're passionate about, even if you think that you don't, uh, it doesn't really dovetail with your professional life. There's an example in there of a skateboarding dentist. And so I sat down and said, okay, well, what do I love? I'm like, I'm a word nerd. I, behind the scenes, but also in speeches, I use definition and understanding and word history as a way of thinking about the world. So I said, all right, let me try it. And I slowly but surely started getting people emailing me and messaging me on LinkedIn going, oh my goodness, I love Word Nerd Wednesday. And so now I look forward to it every week. And some weeks the words are light and funny and it's not terribly in depth. Um, some weeks I use it to really make people think or I try to use it to really make people think about some issue or challenge and customer experience that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, I, I wax a little more philosophical about life, but I just think language shapes how we think about the world. And it's worth pausing to reflect yeah. on that language. I totally agree. I mean, I think it's, you know, 
storytelling is made up of words, obviously, although, you know, there's visual storytelling, but I think so much of it, even when you're visually telling a story. Well, thank you. Well, it's funny you mentioned visual storytelling. I am actually the least visual person you will ever meet, (laughs) I think, in words. I guess it's only like 4% of the population. So I will sometimes have to search on iStock, put in a word and search for that word and concept to think of visual concepts because I know so much of my audience is a visual thinker. So I do try to do the verbal and the visual storytelling, um, but it's not always a natural, uh, natural connection for me. So. So to pivot, and the reason you're doing this, and I mentioned you started your own company a few years ago, what are you doing these days? We'll go back and touch on where you were in the background, but just for for my listeners who may not be familiar with you, what are you doing? Um, So my job is to help companies use customer experience to spark engagement, loyalty, alignment, and growth. Pretty straightforward. Uh, Specifically, I found that as I worked with companies, I've been in the customer experience space a really long time. Uh, We, 15 years ago, when you and I met, we were at a point where customer experience was kind of a nice to have, and isn't that the same as customer service? We have successfully gotten to the point where most people, most executives understand it and really want to harness it, but doing quote unquote customer experience is for a business what eating healthy and exercising (laughs) is for a person. Of course, we're going to do it. Let's eat healthy and exercise, right? What does that actually mean? Yeah. So in some ways I work almost like as a personal trainer with companies to help. I can help you just kind of come up with a routine that you can then execute on your own or really be there and kind of help coach you through. But the actual process of using customer experience as a tool and building customer experience management as a practice into the organization, which is still not a concept that a lot of people uh, have fully internalized. Which is really interesting. I mean, I, you know, I started talking about it 20 years ago to date myself. We probably met 15 years ago and we're talking about it. And like you said, it used to mean something very narrow. Now it means everything. Like I, 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 everything I look at, every solution I see, whether it's Someone trying to sell services on SEO through software solutions, through, you know, Adobe Photoshop, through the Adobe platform of everything is experience and experience first, which is good, but it probably makes the executives you work with head spin because they're just like, yeah, I want to do something about it. I want to look for some way to help. And I don't even know where to start. I mean, there's just everything is thrown at me in this giant bucket now called customer experience. Absolutely. Their, their heads are spinning. And I think it's one of the things that um, we don't really put enough emphasis on is being specific and being precise. One of the things I say uh, in keynotes sometimes is that precise words actually matter more than precise numbers. Mm-hmm. Because when you're talking about, okay, what exactly are we trying to do? Customer experience isn't a verb. Right. That's why I used air quotes when I said do customer experience, mm-hmm. although it's being a podcast, people didn't see that. Um, you know, you design it, you improve it, you measure it, you monitor it, you iterate it. Right. So actually talking about what specifically are you trying to do? And it's true that all of those things contribute to the experience in some way. But the question becomes from the company's perspective and from the customer's perspective, how does, you know, 
search engine optimization might mean that it's more likely that a customer is going to find what they were actually searching for. Yeah, it's um, you mentioned differentiate, and I know that you know back in your days at Forrester, um, you guys started to coin the whole phrase, like your whole practice there, that idea of experience-based differentiation, which at the time, like nobody was thinking about, and then it it became a mantra. I mean, I jumped all over it. I loved it because I thought that was it. You know, to, if there's so many, there's so many other things that it's really difficult to differentiate yourself on even words like wordware, you know, go through 90% of the technology websites that are out there and try to, you know, go through it. If you had the digital equivalent of a highlighter and highlight all the words, there's a lot more of the words that are the same than there are words that are different. It's tough to differentiate with words. And then someone figures out for SEO purposes, I just want to throw in words that are gratuitous because they help my SEO ranking. But that idea of differentiating by, by experience, what is, how are people actually starting? Are people thinking about that differently now, many years on, or is it still? Some are, some aren't. It's still, um, I, you've probably seen the Gartner statistic floating around. The latest version that I've seen is that 81% of companies plan to or think they differentiate on the basis of customer experience. I can tell you from conversations and just working with people that the vast majority of people who, who say that don't actually know what they mean yeah. when they say that. So differentiated experience, what most people mean when they throw that term out is either um, Ritz-Carlton level white glove service, right? So we're going to do what we do, but we're going to have the best customer service possible. Yeah. Or they mean um, some sort of a unique digital enabled experience, which mm -hmm. can in fact be different yeah. um, for now, but it won't be. I remember when USAA first came out with mobile check deposit, it was radical and yeah. differentiating. And now I use it because I'm too lazy to go down the street to my bank. Right. Um, so, I remember Wayne Peacock standing on stage before he was CEO of USAA. He was head of digital at USAA or head of whatever digital fell under, stood on stage at Forrester Customer Experience Forum and showed his phone and how you could deposit a check. And everybody's like, oh my God, who ah? And now, like you said, yeah. now everybody does it. And it's even more so in the last year and a half when you probably couldn't go to the bank and you, know, you didn't want to go to the bank. Yeah. And, and so different how, for whom... Uh, in what way is the kind of questioning that people need to uh, really think about to the Word Nerd Wednesday point. We, we need to have a much more precise conversation about that um, because different, different for difference sake is not always going to get you to the goal, which is brand preference and loyalty mm -hmm. and growth. Mm -hmm. Um, so, um, I would assume that I've been away from it for a couple of years now and was away from it during the pandemic, except as a consumer and closeness to it, just because I worked for multiple companies in it and have lots of friends in it. Yes. Um, I would imagine that the pandemic though made this even more top of mind for executives when suddenly it was like, yeah, the only way we can be in business, at least the digital side of it. The only way we can be in business is to deliver online because we can't have customers coming to our stores. And if there's a problem, they can't reach an agent because they're not available. That had to be a trigger point, at least, of thinking for people. It was. And I gave a, a keynote a couple months ago on the past, present, and future of customer experience. And I referred to the, the pandemic 2020 period as the reckoning. <laughs> 
because decisions people had made about whether or not to invest in digitally enabled experiences uh, and kind of moving forward with that five years ago heavily impacted their ability to react now. And it forced a lot of people to catch up uh, to yeah, things that- You probably couldn't that, just start on March 11th, 2020 and just say, we've got this solved if you- You couldn't, <clears throat> although I have to say I was remarkably impressed by how much, how many companies did so quickly in terms of, so digital business is not just the digital customer experience, it's also digitizing the operations of the business. Mm -hmm. And when people really wanna get things done and need to get things done, it, they make it happen. Yeah. Um, but it was, you know, it's been interesting that there was the digital, the move to more digital interactions at the same time as the move to a much more human view. Mm -hmm of customers, especially in B2B, but it, it, even in the consumer world, um, you know, it humanized everybody really quickly and created a shared experience. So it's been interesting to see those are, those are kind of the two halves of my career coming together. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been interesting to see both of those accelerate at the same time. So I was thinking, like, I know when you do a lot of your customer, or your, I shouldn't even just say customer experience work, just experience work. I know that one of the pillars of that has been you spent time doing work on employee experience also. And I've got to think that that's another one right now that, you know, as, as people contemplate return to work, work from home, last year, maybe everything virtual, hybrid models, like how is how are companies thinking differently today about employee experience compared to where they were a year ago, two years ago. The biggest change is that customers make buying decisions based on how you treat your employees. That was always true to a certain extent for certain customers, but not as much. It, you know, it was kind of a, um, you know, uh, are you putting your money where your mouth is? Uh, and companies realized that that is becoming, you know, values-based purchase decisions is becoming bigger and bigger. So there's more transparency around that. It, it makes um, the public news more. The other thing that's changed is I think it's just made people more conscious of what it's like to be an employee, right? Employee experience is a little bit different than customer experience because it's it's harder, it's less journey-based. Mm -hmm. It's harder to draw a box around a piece of it, mm -hmm. right? Your employee experience is the time you spend at work and thinking about work. Mm -hmm. um, and so really being able to get a perspective of what is that like um, and what actually impacts you, right? One of the things with employee experience very often, it originates out of HR, but the vast majority of an employee's time is spent not dealing with HR, right? Right. If you've right. ever worked in a company. Yeah. So thinking about what are the actual things that influence the sort of day, everyday experience of someone in the course of doing their job. Yeah. There's so much talk now about people just literally saying, yeah, I'm not ever going to go back and work in an office. So I'm just going to quit if my company requires me yeah. to. And that if you didn't provide them a positive employee experience, that's probably an easy decision to make when somebody looks and says, I, I, yeah, I don't have enough holding me here or wanting to be here or enough respect as an individual in the company to even want to stay here. I'll just go somewhere that I think does treat me that way or I've heard treats people that way. And 
Yeah, there. I think everybody's a little bit surprised at how many people are saying they're going to quit or they're going to resign, and it's not just the return to work. Um, the pandemic forced people to really examine their life experience yeah. and how they were using their time in a way that most people hadn't stopped to do uh, before that. And people are making different decisions about sort of what they want their life experience to be. I think one of the things that gets forgotten, though, is we talk so much about return to work and return to the office. There are a lot of people who have physically been at work, right, in retail, in um, uh, service businesses and things like that. Um, there's been a lot in the media on how those people are treated by customers, uh, on, on sort of the volatility of that situation. Mm -hmm. And I have some close friends and family members who are in that business and that is not new. Yeah. It's a particular example of an extreme, but that sort of um, escalation of people becoming increasingly entitled. Dave Franklin um, wrote a book called Marketing to the Entitled Consumer and having to, to manage that, mm -hmm. um, that's not new, but I think it's getting a newfound appreciation from people who don't live in that world. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Um, you touched earlier, you mentioned your dual, your the dual sides of your career. And so, and even going back to Word Nerd Wednesday, so I know your background and you started, you know, in as an engineer in engineering, so your back, digital background. And then you were, you know, when I met you, you're, you're advising businesses and the business side of organizations far more than the IT side of organizations or technology sides on experience. And then you've got the words thing and you said you're more of a, a words person than a visual person, which isn't necessarily that that technology background. Can you go through that? Like, how did you get from there? Because I think that's a really part of you. I think it's what makes you so good at what you do. But I think it's what that that whole background, I think, is just unique compared to a lot of people who are just strictly a technologist or strictly a, 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 a business person, for lack of a better term. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's I'm always amazed at how interested people are in this in my story, because to me, it just it has sort of evolved. But uh, I like to start by saying I was always that weird kid who liked math and science in school the same as I liked uh, English and what we called social studies at mm -hmm. the time English and history, right? I was I was just an overall geek, I was interested in everything. Um, I ended up just because of the era that I was growing up in, I ended up actually going to a summer camp for computer programming, the, the magic class. It was a college for kids camp and the magic class that I wanted to take was full. Hmm. So I had to take the basic programming class. Um, and that got me in like, oh, okay, programming computers is interesting. And I ended up majoring in computer science and software engineering. But at the same time, the whole time I was taking psychology classes, management classes. Uh, two of my favorite classes in college were the history of American technology and the history of information technology. Because I was more fascinated by how technology shapes and impacts the lives of people and vice versa. Mm -hmm. um, and as I got into graduate school and then into working, I realized that that was actually the much bigger gap and the much bigger challenge uh, was really fitting those pieces together of, of how do we make technology work for people. Uh, and so when I was uh, 
when I got out of grad school, I was a requirements engineer at AT AT&T working on some of the first websites. Uh, And I used to joke that I, my job was like being a marriage counselor between (laughs) the business and the technology organizations. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, you both want the same thing, but you live in totally different worlds, right? Let's, let's figure out how to find some compromise. And when I went to Forrester, at the time, the customer experience practice was almost exclusively user experience, owing to Forrester's history and technology. Mm-hmm. So making that jump from what I was doing, designing websites and requirements engineering, to website usability, uh, that was kind of a natural progression. And then in 2008, 2009, when the recession hit, suddenly people realized that your website doesn't live in a vacuum mm-hmm. and customer experience was a bigger business consideration. I mean, if I'm completely honest, um, it wasn't an option to just throw money at acquisition and get more new customers. Yeah. So you had to worry about how to keep the ones you had. Yeah. And so my evolution of my research coverage from just the, the technical usability to the overall experience of doing business with a company, uh, that was really customer-led, that that was market-driven. We we had been trying to get people to pay attention to that. The the recession did more to make that happen than we ever Another one of those days of reckoning to a certain degree, right? Sometimes it takes those big things. I've, you know, it takes a big event sometimes to get people's attention, unfortunately. You can think you're telling them to do the right thing, but they don't care until they have some financial, generally, incentive to actually do those things. Like you said, the people who managed to do a lot last year in one year on an experience front who didn't do much on it prior because they had to. And it's just, it's interesting how that all works. So that's part of the psychology, right? That's the. Yeah. My number one philosophy with culture, because a lot of the work I do is around business transformation. So they're transforming the customer experience, but in order to do that, they have to transform the business Mm -hmm. and the culture and rule number one is it's easier to work with human nature than to try to change it. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen. People are going to ignore this stuff until there's some sort of a crisis. Some people are going to ignore it. Um, And so figuring out how do we leverage those moments, um, I think is one of the things that, that as an industry or as a field, the customer experience field needs to get better at uh, kind of getting alongside people and taking them at their, their pace. So, and correct me if I get this wrong, but through my, my, from my prism, the way a forester works, there's kind of two aspects of an analyst role, right? There's the, the aspect of you have customers of foresters who you're advising and helping strategically with things. And then there's this other side, which is the, you know, dealing with vendors and learning about technologies and finding out those things. And there's, that's, that's gotta be an interesting thing because it's, it's that split. And then my question was like, how influential is a Forrester, a Gartner, the analyst community in general, not naming names anymore? Like it used to be completely. Like if you didn't get coverage by Forrester, if you weren't top right in a Forrester wave, or if you weren't top right in a Gartner Magic Quadrant, like you'd get kicked out of an AT&T if you were trying to sell them something. I My experience in the last few years was that's not quite as important as it, as it used to be. 
But I don't know that from, you know, I, I, I viewed it maybe narrowly because I wanted to be there and wasn't there as opposed to the person who's up there. I, it's, I'm just curious as to how, how do those two things rationalize against each other and then just how important is it? And is it different for the business side versus the IT side of organizations too? Yeah, well, full disclosure, I didn't cover much technology when I was at Forrester and our team as a whole, the customer experience team kind of made the decision not to uh, in large part because the the people that we were serving as our clients, the people who are trying to lead customer experience transformation, weren't the technology buyers. Right. They were influencers, but it, to really know and understand a technology market that deeply takes a tremendous amount of time, mm -hmm. and it just didn't make sense for us to do it. And that's still, to some extent, um, to some extent, the case. So I actually don't follow various technology platforms. Like if you want to know the nuances of, yeah. of who should be on your short list, I will still send you back to, to colleagues at Forrester. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's as much about perception. And interestingly, um, I think the biggest influence that the analyst role has uh, is on shaping how people think about things. Like I see... Um, when I did the maturity model in the customer experience maturity model mm -hmm. in 2010, the challenge we were, the problem we were trying to solve was, okay, there's this thing called customer experience management that encompasses everything. And we need people to understand the scope of it, but we also don't want to overwhelm them. So how do we come up with a framework for a way to talk about that? Um, that is simple enough that people can grab onto, mm -hmm. but doesn't send people running those six disciplines are so ingrained in the thinking, in the conversation, in the lingo now, but people don't necessarily understand or realize how much thought and how much choice went into picking those and describing them the way we did. So I think the analyst community as a whole, by shaping the way people think about uh, a particular business discipline, at least this has been the case for customer experience. That's where I think we have the biggest impact. One of my former colleagues at Forrester is the guy who coined the phrase client server computing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never, I had a master's in software engineering and didn't know that until I got to Forrester. Um, so the, there is the technology piece of it. And I think that's the most concrete, acute, like, I have to make a decision. Yeah. And so that's where a lot of the energy tends to focus. Yeah. But there's um, there's a lot more that shapes the way people think about even what it is they're buying. Is there um is that same siloed nature that you were mentioning with ATT when you were there, or when actually after ATT, when when you were at Forrester and doing do those IT versus business, not versus, but IT business side, I know the silos still exist, but I've got to think that today they've at least moved together where some of the bright lines are a little bit blurrier than they used to be, or are they really not? They are. And, and this is, again, where I go back to human nature. Human nature is to organize and sort and categorize things and divide things up. It's yeah. how our brains work, right? Yeah. Little kids put things into piles. Um, so to expect suddenly that people are not going to do that is is unrealistic. I think it's being able to understand and bring together 
what is the sphere of concern of those different areas and coming together. So I think uh, technology organizations understand much better now um, what the business is trying to do and how technology plays a role in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the, the business side of the organization understands more that technology is a tool that can help and thinking about how do we um, how do we identify a need and then let the technology folks use their innovation and expertise to potentially come up with a differentiating mm-hmm. solution. Mm-hmm. So there is definitely um, more of a of a multidisciplinary mindset, uh, but that takes work yeah. and it takes practice. I mean, even for me, uh, I work with CMOs, I work with CIOs, I work with chief digital officers, and I have to really sit down and like I read the CMO, CIO, and CFO columns in the Wall Street Journal because they're completely different perspectives yeah. and things that they cover. And I have to kind of reprime my brain to be thinking about those different people's perspectives. Yeah, interesting. Um, you mentioned what you're doing in the the background of your business now, but a lot of that is speaking engagements, ones like it this. was before the pandemic. Well, that's what I was going to say. So um, <laughs> I know that that's your you know that's an ideal for you is to do more and more speaking engagements. Of course, 2020 changed all that at least temporarily. How's um? But that had to be that had to be a big shock to the system when you start developing this. You've had a background in it and you started to really, but you develop your own brand, if you will, as, as a keynote speaker and presenter. And then suddenly, you know, congratulations, there aren't events happening anymore, at least for a while. Yeah. I mean, I, I was very lucky that a big chunk of my business is, is consulting and coaching. Mm-hmm. So I, I had a little more balance than some of my friends who had, you know, six figures worth of business disappear overnight. Yeah. Um, it was certainly stressful, but it really forced those of us who are influencers. And I like to use the term influencers rather than speakers to think about what we do versus how we do it. Because influencing, communicating information, um, entertaining, all of those aspects are still there. Mm-hmm. I think it made us appreciate in a more us and the audiences appreciate in a visceral way the sort of thing you can't capture, the je ne sais quoi about actually being in a room together yeah. um, that people appreciate more now. But it also forced us to be really creative in terms of thinking about how can we share information and communicate it and get people thinking in new and interesting and different uh, ways. Mm -hmm. So something as simple as if I'm doing a virtual keynote, um, it's not about me in the box and my sort of energy the way it is on a stage. It's about the visuals. Mm -hmm. So I watched a, a little course and webinar, not not little, but it was short, um, from Duarte, the um, storytelling, visual yeah. storytelling geniuses, yeah. about how to design slides and visuals for virtual or online presentation, because those are the attention, and it's a completely different visual communication process. Mm-hmm. You have to assume that your slides are being viewed on a, a mobile phone screen, right? So just really stretching the limits of A, how well do you know your content? Because if you have to prepare it in a totally different way, that pushes you. Um, And B, really thinking about the experience 
in a more intentional way than we had when we were just kind of doing what we'd always done. And it's got to be difficult just from the, even if, even as you can prepare as much as you can prepare and have the right content and the right visuals, but without getting even this level of, we don't need this level of interaction that we're having is more interaction than you have when you're just presenting to 200, 500, a thousand people at the other end of a screen and you don't get any feedback from them at all. That's, that's just gotta be, you don't, I, I just did a pod with a, uh, a guy who I know who's a, a magician and he started out, it actually debuted, it came out today. And in it, he talks about, he started in Covent Garden in London, just in, you know, on a street corner. Yeah. And he said his unique ability, his unique ability is he knows when he's failing. He knows when he's bombing. Like he, he just, he goes, I've always known when I'm bombed. So I've been able to adjust on the flight. It's got to be really difficult. Not, I'm not saying that you're bombing ever, but it's got to be difficult to ever know, is this resonating? Is this getting across? Are people nodding their heads? Or are they switching over to the other screen that's up on here and reading email or checking the sports scores or watching the Euros game? Yeah. Um, that's harder in person than most people realize. I've given keynotes where afterward I've gotten huge, you know, I've gotten great raving scores. But if you had asked me in the moment, the audience was like completely deadpan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm not necessarily the best judge uh, of of that. And sometimes that's just because of the nature of sitting in a packed ballroom shoulder to shoulder with people you don't know. Yeah. Um, but it really made us think more about having a conversation. I actually don't present as much when I'm doing something online. I try to engage in more of a conversation. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it's it's limited, but um, asking questions on chat, um, doing things that are open-ended. There are some incredible tools for interaction that we were starting to use in live events. Like I did one here in Boston where uh, we were talking about the skills that are most important for customer experience professionals. And I was able to do a live generated word cloud Mm -hmm. on the screen behind me from people in the audience. That stuff is actually easier to do in an online environment. Um, So thinking about different ways to achieve the same uh, learning or understanding or thinking uh, objectives is absolutely true. Yeah, if if you're just presenting, um, it's really hard to tell. Um, I try not to do that. I hated webinars before mm-hmm. this because it was like speaking into a black hole. Yeah. Um, I I still don't love them. Uh, so the more interactive we can get. Um, it just takes some creativity. Well, I think the good news is you're a good storyteller. So in any of those mediums, you probably resonate pretty well with it. So I, I wouldn't be worried about it if I were you. Well, thank you. Thank um, you. I try. <laughs> so on um, on a different front, going back to your background a little bit. So you 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 had this background in engineering, and then you focused a lot of that was on was actually on UI kind of engineering, right? And like the way people interacted with things. Yep. And I think that's just the reason I think of that is after what you just described is this is just a new way of thinking about something that you were thinking about way back then. The way people are interacting over a screen wasn't what you were thinking about them, but it was still, you know, that interaction point. And you mentioned the idea of humans at the other end of it. And I, you know, I think that that's one of those things where I, I used to get traction. I think you and I talked about this. I used to get traction with people. They'd sit there and go, well, you know, a million users had a problem with something. Who cares? And I go, that's not a million users. It's a million people. 
like a million human beings trying to do something, or it probably wasn't a million, but a thousand, a hundred, whatever the number was. Yeah. Um, they're actual human beings at the other end of that mouse or at the digital screen who are sitting there. And I think that that's such a underserviced thing for people's thinking in terms of the idea of the humanity of the digital, of the, the consumer of content or anything else digitally is still a human being. It is. And you know what? It's not our fault that we forget that, you know, another piece of the, so I am most fascinated by how human beings experience the world and how different things influence what we do. So that's kind of the umbrella that sits over everything. We have kind of a psychological immune system that makes us uh, depersonalize uh, what the, I first read about it in the context of, of why do people not look other people in the eye in big <laughs> cities it's called mm -hmm. the urban trance. It is actually our immune system. Imagine if we um, felt and absorbed all of the feelings of everyone around us in New York City. You, lit, you, would, you would crumble Overload. under the weight of yeah. that empathy. So that depersonalization is partly a feature, not a bug. Um, it's also partly because our brains evolved with the assumption that everything was face-to-face -face contact. So I try to take a more compassionate attitude and say to people, you are naturally going to be distant and not think of that. So what can you do? Um, you know, and personas are a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. Some people are calling them avatars now. Um, but instead of thinking about, um, you know, a customer, think about, um, uh, you know, Amy or Raphael, you know, some yeah. actual human who is doing this. I, one of my favorite exercises to do with people is an empathy map. And I've actually been doing it with some of my speaker friends, which has been really interesting where you think about right before somebody's about to have an experience, what are they thinking, seeing, feeling, and hearing related to what you're about to do, but also all the other stuff that's in their environment. Yeah, it's interesting. And that exercise, people who are customer-centric, who care passionately about their customers, but we just don't think about that as much. Um, it, it's a skill. And it, I always talked about the, the need to practice empathy, mm -hmm. like you would practice the piano, right? It's not just something where you are empathetic or you're not. Yeah. It is an ongoing it's a thing. Yeah. Even for people who have a naturally high empathy set point, mm -hmm. um, it takes work. Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, I was just thinking when you're talking about the environmental things around somebody, even, even in a buying experience, in a digital buying experience, you know, like if I'm deep in a digital buying process and then you make me an offer and in your mind, the offer, I'm like trying to give you something, a better deal on something. I sometimes find it very invasive because environmentally, well, I'm just trying to be task oriented and I'm not environmentally in the space where I'm like, well, tell me something else. Yeah. And, and that's a challenge if you're a digital marketer and you're trying to get something across, you're like, no, but I have a, you know, I have a job to do to sell this thing, to merchandise it in this way we've designed a flow. And I can't get inside the heads of every single person. And when they get to this stage and one person might react to that, another person say, great, I want that offer. Great idea. 
And that is just so much more difficult than if you're standing behind the counter at Macy's and somebody walks up and you say, you know, do you want a credit, you know, can I give you another 15% off if you apply for a Macy's credit card today? And you go, yes or no. It's a 10, you know, 10 second conversation. Well, I will say that in my personal experience, that is no longer a 10 second conversation. <laughs> um, it is incredibly persistent to the point where I almost have to be like, um, I know what you're trying to do. I know you have a goal around this. I am not going to open a credit card. I appreciate that, but thank you. Yeah, yeah, I have to be that direct, which I understand how that happens. But one of the things, one of the key concepts, we talk about being journey oriented or thinking in journeys. A customer journey is the steps someone takes to accomplish a goal. Mm -hmm. So to your point about task orientation, being marketed to is not a goal. Right. So marketing campaigns are not journeys. A marketing campaign either kicks off a journey that the customer was not already on or serendipitously comes to them mm -hmm. in the midst of a journey that they were already on and takes them down a different path. But that's one of, I think, the main um, conceptual shifts that a lot of marketers have to make uh, is that when you are experienced and journey-led, you're moving at the customer's pace, which may be slower than the pace that you would like to go. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Um, yeah, that conversation about the credit card is a frequent one. I had one, someone asked me one the other day and my first thought was, why in the world would, do you think that I would need a credit card in this particular store that I'm in? But what do I know? But and be, being in the field that we're in, I know entirely too I, much about why I, and how I, I, and how they make their money. And so absolutely, I'm always just absolutely. like, I bought a, a just total diversion. I bought like a $40 item at Best Buy last week. And so, you know, it's pretty disposable. And they said, do you want to get the, do you want to get the extended plan for it? The extended um, um, service plan for it. And I'm thinking to myself, even at $9, I don't need it for a $40 item that's going to last me five years. But I know that they have their profit margin on that $9 sale is a hundred times what it is on the $40 sale. So it totally makes sense. Yeah. Um, so going forward now, 2021, going into 12, halfway through 2021 now, going into 2022, what, um, how's, how are things going for you? What's the, what are the plans going forward? Things are starting to shift back to sense of normalcy. Um, it, you know, there's sort of personal life and professional life. I've worked from home for five years yeah. since I went out on my own. So, you know, working from home and, and not leaving the house is not that unusual <laughs> for me. It was just a matter of degrees. Yeah. Um, we are starting to see more in-person events happening and coming back um, with, with speakers. I think uh, they're happening in a smaller way. So I think we're going to see more... Um, almost like hub and spoke types of things mm -hmm. where you might have clusters of people in a room in different cities with a satellite location. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the new normal, as much as that phrase is overused, <laughs> um, is part of it. I think one of the fabulous things is that companies are once again, doubling down on customer experience coming out of this. Mm -hmm. I sort of expected that, you know, companies would say, well, we can't, you know, we can't be doing any sort of a transformation yeah. initiative. We yeah. just have to keep the lights on. Yeah. And that was true for six or eight months. But now, especially in B2B, companies that are really thinking about this whole human experience, uh, I've seen an acceleration of that uh, in a way that I didn't expect. You know, it's 
it's a not to overuse the word, but it's a journey. I still get people coming to me now who don't know customer experience is a thing mm -hmm. and who are where some companies were 15 years ago. I care that they're here. I don't care how long yeah. it takes. Yeah. I'm glad you're here. Yeah. Um, but this idea, I don't, I don't know if you're, uh, I don't read sci-fi, but I have read sci-fi. Uh, William Gibson quote, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the truest things ever said. Yeah. I mean, and, you know, they're all in tech, you know, in technology marketer speak, right? There's early adopters, there's pragmatic buyers, there's late stage people, and there's people that have to be dragged along. And we're probably at the stage now where some of the people that had to be dragged along are the more, or the more pragmatic, the early adopters of our, you know, they're long, they're not gone, but they've already invested. Then the pragmatic ones, and, you know, now there's the late stage guys going, well, I guess, you know, I guess we have to do this. We need, and, you know, the cool thing about the late stage adopters, I always tell people, um, we were making it up as we went along in 2007, eight, nine. Um, now, one of the things I love doing is helping people kind of get a jump start by saying, you don't, you don't have to figure this out. This has been done. Yeah. There is a structure. We know what works. We know what doesn't. And when I can come in and help a company sort of think about what they're doing in terms of building a customer experience practice the right way, right from the beginning, and then watch their adoption curve skyrocket. That's when I kind of think, okay, all that and it, uh, boulder pushing was worth it. And you then. know, there's there's another part of it that I sort of track, and I don't have a lot of names off the top of my head to just blurt out. But there are people. Wayne Peacock is one who back then he was like the digital. He ran the digital businesses to train. You know, he was the one thinking about transformation USAA. Ten years later, he's the CEO of USAA. My friend Joe Megabo, you know, 10 years ago, Joe Megabo was just going to start digital transformation at hotels.com, maybe more than 10 years ago. He's the CEO of Purple. Like these, the, those, and I think that there's so many of those people who were the forward thinkers that are now actually, from, from a personal perspective, their businesses obviously did well, but they themselves have personally expanded their influence and their careers as a result of that, which is, that's a pretty cool thing. It is cool. And I think one of the things that people don't realize or appreciate. So first of all, fun fact, the first Forrester customer experience forum was 2009. And basically all we did was took what was the financial services yeah. forum with a theme of customer experience and flipped it. I remember. Um, and Wayne Paycock was yeah. one of the, the first speakers yeah. there. Um, but I think the unique thing that we see in those CEOs is um, people who understand that being customer centric does not mean giving away the farm. Like there's a, there's a story that is um, a lot of people know about Nordstrom taking a return of tire chains, yeah. Yeah. even though they've never sold tire chains. I hate that story <laughs> because it makes people think that being customer centric is doing everything the customer wants yeah. all the time. Yeah. And it's not. Uh, you know, it's about, there's a great quote from HubSpot in their culture deck, bankrupt companies can't delight their customers, right? So that's, it's this ability to be led by who are we trying to serve and what value do they need mm -hmm. or could they benefit from and how do we provide that, but do so in a way that also creates financial value. There's a, a, a human element to it and there's a, a yes and multidisciplinary element to it mm -hmm. um, that I think we're seeing a, a new generation of business leaders who are less 
one side or the other, and they, they're more comfortable living in the middle. Cool. So that's a great place to sort of pivot. So we'll pivot to the end because okay. um, we're running on time, and I want to make sure that I get this part in. So for each of the pods, I'm ending with three questions. Okay. Just three questions for you. And the first one is, what's the most recent movie or show that you've seen or watched or binge watched that you want to share with people that you think other people might enjoy? So this is going to seem really weird and really heavy. I will tell you, I am a documentary nut, um, but I just finished watching the new PBS uh, four-part series on the mysteries of mental illness. Okay. And that goes back to, I think, my fascination of how people experience the world. Mm -hmm. I also, you know, have lived with depression and anxiety in my own life. I think it's important to be transparent about that. Um, I learned so much, even as someone who has lived this and knows people who have lived it and studies it, uh, just in terms of the, the history and the biology and the understanding, and frankly, the treatments. The last episode was on the new frontiers of treatment mm -hmm. for different um, mental, uh, mental health conditions. And I kind of sat there going, really? We, like, we can do that? Um, so it, it, that was really interesting. And I think it's a little bit um, sobering mm -hmm. to watch, to really sort of accept where we've come from, yeah. but then also to see where we're going. And mental health is such a huge um, topic right now at the forefront um, that I think the, the more educated we can all get about it, the better. Cool. Um, how about a recent book you've read or favorite podcast other than this one? that you think is a, that, that you'd recommend to people? Um, a favorite podcast. Um, or a book. It, yeah. I, I, it's funny. I'm, I'm never reading one book at once. Um, there's one that I'm, I'm sort of plugging my way through from Cass Sunstein. It's called how change happens. Okay. And it's actually more about sort of social change than I thought it was. I thought it was going to be more of a, of a kind of, you know, Chip and Dan Heath switch, which is one of the most influential books in my life mm -hmm. ever. Um, but it's been really fascinating because he's talking about different ways that seeing somebody else express a belief either unleashes, gives you social permission to express a belief you already had or changes your belief. And that comes into play with, with culture and influence mm -hmm. and leadership and all of those dynamics. It's just a, a whole new layer of being able to understand what's going on in that so that we can be more strategic about um, what, I have a methodology called moments of change. Mm -hmm. What moments of change do we need to create for individuals in an organization to create a catalyst that is going to unleash either this way they were already thinking, mm -hmm. why don't we take better care of customers, or to change their mind uh, in some way. So I think it'd be an interesting read just from the social change perspective outside of the business context, just because we're going through so much so much tension on social change and social um, interactions these days that I think that just the understanding the, the behind what it is to actually, you know, people say, well, we're going to protest or we're going to do this, we're going to do that. But what are you actually doing? Like what is actually, how are you going to influence change to happen is a difficult thing for most people to get their arms around. Yeah. And I will be the first one to admit it's a little dense. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm on the chapter right now about law 
and the role that law plays and is making laws about certain things. Is it the law or the statement that the law is making? And it gets a little wow. heavy. So uh, that's part of what I do is I read stuff like that and then make it applicable in the general world. But that's, if you want to geek out, that's a good one. Cool. So last one, and I'm going to, I'm probably going to butcher this on you, but I want your favorite current song or artist you've got on repeat. And I want to pivot back to, if I remember correctly, you had this like hair bands, metal music kind of background thing that doesn't fit your persona, the Megan that I knew professionally. And then I think we were out for dinner once after an event and we had this conversation. So, but it doesn't have to be that, but what's your current song or artist on repeat? And you know, where's that? Um, so the last four or five years, I've really gotten into country music, okay. which was a total accident. I was driving home from Cape Cod. I live in Massachusetts. And the only station I could get to come in was a country station. And there's actually a huge country audience up here in Massachusetts. I was about to be surprised that there was a country station in, that you could get between Boston and, Mass and Cape Cod. There, but that, there are yeah. several. And actually, the, um, the Foxborough Stadium, where the Patriots play, mm -hmm. is actually some of the biggest... There are country artists who kick their tour off. I'm not, I can't think of who it is. It might be Kenny Chesney, but um, I think what I love about those songs and what I've always loved about them is that they are stories. Yeah. They in, are inherently stories. Um, and so th there's a lot of fun there. Um, there's one that came out um, a couple of years ago that I've come back to a lot lately, which is called, I Believe Most People Are Good. And that was just the right song at the right time mm -hmm. um, to kind of remind us that our perception of the world through media versus our perception of the world in reality, um, those are very, very different things. Um, and so making sure that we as every time I listen to that song, it reminds me to look around and extrapolate what I believe about the world from the things I see around me, mm -hmm. not the things that are picked. Um, I think the one of the lines is, um, if you just go by the nightly news, faith in all mankind will be the first thing you lose. Hmm. That's pretty powerful. It, it is. Um, so just something to remember, being informed, yeah. um, but also maintaining perspective. Yeah. Sounds like a great place for us to to stop. So thank yeah. you so much. And, oh, and I was just going to say, if you really just want to have fun, you know, um, uh, living on a prayer. Yeah. I remember being made fun of in junior high for liking that song and yeah. being a rabid Bon Jovi fan. And now you can't go to a wedding, bar, dance, now that we're going to those again. And yeah. literally everyone of every age is up dancing to that song. And I kind of want to go, see? Yeah, I told you, it told you so, in retrospect. Well, thank you so much for being on with me. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I love this topic and I can't wait to hear uh, the other stories that you, you bring well, to uh, your listeners and of which I am now one. Great, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Talk soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts.